Although ticks might be tiny, their impact on public health has been huge. When a tick bites a sick animal, the pathogens in that animal's body stay in that tick's saliva, ready to be transferred to the new host with the next bite. In humans, these tick-borne diseases can lead to severe health complications if left untreated. And as tick populations continue to grow across the globe, so does the number of people affected by them. Here with us to discuss is Dr. Paul Sasso, Medical Site Director of the Andrus Pavilion Emergency Department at St. John's Riverside Hospital. This is Riverside Radio HealthCast, a podcast from St. John's Riverside Hospital. I'm Prakash Chandran. So Dr. Sasso, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. You know, I mentioned it at the top, but I'm curious, what exactly are the key factors contributing to the recent increase in tick-borne diseases? Thank you so much for having me, Prakash. It's interesting. We're definitely seeing a rise on the number of tick populations. Predominantly in the Northern Hemisphere, we're seeing tick populations expanding pretty much from the middle of the United States and the Midwest, all the way up and down the Atlantic coast. Predominantly, it's mostly saturated in the Northeast. That's where we have the highest density of tick-borne diseases and illnesses. There's a lot of factors that contribute to why we're seeing a increase in the tick populations, and then because of that, the transmission of tick-borne diseases. A lot of it has to do with climate change. So ticks are exotherms, which means that they are dependent on their environment to regulate their temperature. So as we see climate temperatures increase, those warmer climates will speed up the tick's natural life cycle, which normally runs three years. So we're seeing them reproducing at a faster rate and an earlier rate and at higher rates. So that's one of the factors. The other thing that's contributing pretty significantly to the rise in tick-borne illnesses is that we're noticing that as climate change and climates increase, we're not getting those traditionally cold winters, especially on the Northeast that we're used to. So we need those really cold winters to kill off a percentage of tick populations. And that's just like a normal regulatory process in nature that helps regulate tick populations. So the warmer that our winters are, not as many ticks get killed off. So that's another factor. We're seeing more and more humans inhabit areas where the animals that carry ticks live. So the animals that carry the diseases that ticks then pick up are small rodents, such as the white-footed mouse, chipmunks, squirrels, some raccoons. Those are the animals that generally carry the disease. So as humans move more and more into these more rural settings and outdoor settings, they're exposing themselves more to the areas where we're finding the animals that ticks live. The other thing that happens is we're seeing a decrease in the predators of some of those small mammals. One of the predators that we've seen the species kind of decline a little bit is the red fox. So an animal that would normally feed off animals such as the white-footed mouse, when we see the predator population decrease, that leads to an increase in these animal vectors like the white-footed mouse. So as those go up, the amount of those small rodents carrying disease goes up. And we talked about the factors leading to an increase in the number of the tick populations going up. All those factors together is what has caused an uptick, I guess pun intended, in the tick populations and tick-borne diseases that we're seeing right now. Wow, there are so many factors that go into what has caused this rise in tick-borne diseases. Let's get into the diseases themselves. Can you talk a little bit more about what these tick-borne diseases are? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the most common disease that we're probably mostly familiar with is going to be Lyme disease. And that's caused by a bacterium, Borrelia burgdorferi. The other diseases that we commonly see are ehrlichiosis, which is another bacteria, and babesiosis, which is a parasite. There's another very rare disease. It's a virus, actually. It's the Poisson virus. So ticks can carry a variety of things. They can carry bacteria, they can carry parasites, and they can carry viruses as well. Okay, so Lyme disease is the most common. What do people experience or what are the symptoms if people have contracted something like Lyme disease? Absolutely. Great question. So Lyme disease is going to look like a summer flu, right? So very seasonal illnesses. So the seasons, especially here in the Northeast and Midwest, that we're going to see a lot of our tick exposures and tick-borne diseases is going to be spring, summer, and fall. These are the times of years where we're outside, we're hiking, we're biking, people are outside, walking on trails, so on and so forth. So the symptoms of Lyme disease are going to present with things like fever, chills, muscle joint aches, headaches. And then about 70 to 80% of people are going to have a very classic rash around the bite. Uh, it's been described as either a target lesion or a bullseye rash. But just because you don't get the rash doesn't mean you couldn't get Lyme disease. And not everyone gets it. So 20 to 30% won't get that kind of like classic rash. Babesia, very similar, flu-like symptoms, fever, chills, sweats, headaches, body aches, and sometimes you can get a little bit of nausea, fatigue with these. And then Ehrlichia, very similar as well, fever, chills, headaches, muscle aches, nausea, vomiting, sometimes diarrhea with this one, loss of appetite, and then sometimes in children you'll see a rash, more of a diffuse rash with Ehrlichia. So the symptoms are kind of nonspecific symptoms. One of the ways that we teach these symptoms to the residents and young doctors in our program is that sometimes it can look like a flu, but it's not really flu season, right? Mm. Flu season traditionally in the winter, and we're seeing these symptoms in the summer. Okay, so let's get into specifics. Can you talk to us a little bit more about how you go about diagnosing and then treating some of these tick-borne diseases? Another great question. So depending on where you're practicing medicine in the United States and really in the world, there's different diseases that you have to think about. Luckily, we don't have to think about every single disease all the time, right? Some diseases are very regionally specific, but where we're broadcasting from here in the Northeast and here in Westchester, Lyme disease is prevalent. You know, it's something that we don't see uncommonly. So it is part of the things that we think about when we're diagnosing patients with these types of symptoms during these specific seasons. There are very specific blood tests for each of these. There are different blood tests for Lyme disease and Ehrlichia. These have to be done via blood. There's blood smears for the parasitic diseases. And then that virus that I mentioned before, the Poisson virus, that's a really tricky one to diagnose. Most mm. labs actually don't even have the capability to diagnose that one. Usually, it's a very tricky one to diagnose. Usually, those cases are pretty severe, but luckily, they're still pretty rare at this point. But we are seeing slightly more cases of those, as we talked about before, as we're seeing the numbers in the tick populations increase. Okay. So because of this increase in the tick population, I think it's important for people to know when they should be concerned and when they should come in to get diagnosed. Like, for example, we're in the summer. There are summer allergies that are about. So do you have a framework that people can use to basically tell themselves, hey, this is something more serious and I need to get looked at? Another great question. The big difference with these diseases and the more common things such as allergies and seasonal allergies, allergic reactions, and so on and so forth, is really going to be two things. It's going to be the presence of a fever 
and it's going to be the severity of the symptoms, right? So common allergies can present with runny nose and headache and congestion, so on and so forth, but you're not going to get a fever with those, right? Mm. Once you start to spike the fever, there, there's something infectious going on, right? Now, not every fever necessarily means that there's something terrible going on, right? You can get a fever, a runny nose, a cough, sore throat, and it's a mild upper respiratory infection, right? We get, usually we'll get a couple of those during the winter. Some of us, especially with kids, we'll pick up something from our kids and get one of those in the spring or summer as well, right? What's different about these tick-borne diseases is that you're not getting that upper respiratory component. You're not getting that runny nose. You're not getting that tickle in your throat. You're not getting the cough. Really, the symptoms are going to be more fever, headache, body aches, joint pains, nausea. So they're more systemic symptoms, and you're not getting that easy explanation. So when we do see the runny nose, we do see the sore throat, we do see the cough, those are pretty classic for common viruses, you know, your common cold and so on and so forth. It's the absence of those and the presence of the fever and the other symptoms we talked about, the joint pain, the muscle pain, the headache, that kind of start to point us in the direction that this could be something like a tick-borne illness. So as people come in for these tick-borne illnesses, how exactly do they get treated? Are they given a regiment of medication or is it something more involved? It's a, a little bit of a two-part question. So it depends a little bit on when we're catching the disease, right? So there are stages to the disease. So I guess the first thing we could talk about, and I'll touch upon this a little bit later too, is that it takes about 36 hours for a tick to be attached to us in order to transmit a disease. So really, the sooner that we can identify that a tick has attached to us and remove it, the better chance that we have of avoiding any sort of serious disease transmission. So there's treatment for tick exposure, right? So if a tick has been attached for greater than 24 hours, there's a one pill antibiotic that we traditionally give patients, right? Now, after about seven to 10 days, let's say we didn't catch the tick being attached to us. After about seven to 10 days, we might experience some of these more severe symptoms, the fevers, the chills, the body aches, the rash, so on and so forth. Once we get to that stage, now we're talking about a longer duration of treatment. For Lyme disease, it's 21 days. For Ehrlichia and Babesia, it's also a longer course of treatment as well. And then sometimes these disease, and that's why it's so important to do things like this and educate our community and the people in our community, is that some of these diseases can have really serious consequences if left undiagnosed or untreated. And those sometimes can require hospitalization, IV antibiotics, IV antiparasitics, so on and so forth, and longer kind of hospital stays. But really our goal with this is to create some education and awareness out there such that we're taking some preventative measures, we're knowing what to look out for, and if we are exposed, we know what to do quickly as opposed to waiting for things to progress. Okay, so let's dive into those preventative measures. I imagine that one thing that you should do is if you are in one of those areas that you were saying this uptick in the Midwest and the Atlantic coast, that you should be checking yourself, especially after being outside for a long time. And even if you have an animal or a dog, checking them as well. Is that fair? Is there anything else that you recommend? Yeah, so I think a great starting point when talking about prevention is where are we going to pick up ticks, right? So there's the obvious stuff, right? So where do ticks live? So we talked a little bit before that their initial carrier is going to be the small rodents. But then what happens is that the ticks leave them, get picked up by deer, and the deer have like a wider range. So they can drop it off on like tall grass or tall brush. 
So really what you want to avoid just to start off is like I just said, avoid tall grass, avoid really brushy areas, right? Those are going to be your highest risk areas for picking up a tick, right? So if you're outside and you're hiking, you're camping, you're hunting, whatever you're doing outside, what you want to do is really stay to the marked trails. You want to avoid going off onto those side areas where the higher grass is or the brushes, brushy areas are. And that's really the first thing that you can do. Another thing that you could do is that when you are outside and you are in areas that may have ticks, right? So you're hiking in the woods, you're camping, so on and so forth. What you want to do is you want to wear proper clothing, right? So what that means is you want to wear long clothing, right? Long pants, long sleeve shirt, and even go as far as tucking your pants into your socks, right? Maybe not the sexiest or most attractive thing to be doing, but a great way to prevent kind of ticks from crawling up your leg. And then the last thing that we could do is we can either spray our clothing or ourselves with EPA approved sprays. So there's permethrin, right? Which is a great chemical, which is great at repelling ticks. There's clothing. You could buy these at your kind of like outdoor clothing outlets that actually come embedded with this chemical into the clothing, or we can simply treat our own clothing with this. So a combination of those three kind of mitigation techniques. So avoiding high grass, avoiding brushy areas, wearing long clothing, and then either having clothing that's pre-treated or treating our clothing is a great way to prevent us from getting ticks in the first place. Yeah. And then you touched upon probably the most important thing out of everything. After we're outside, you need to do a full body check, right? So parents with kids, if your kids are at camp, if your kids are outside, you got to look them over head to toe, right? And ticks like to move to the warmer places of our bodies. So even though, let's say we're wearing shorts and a t-shirt, maybe the tick got onto our leg, that tick's going to move up, right? And we may not find it until we look under our shirt, under our shorts, so on and so forth. Have someone in your household check your back. You know, you may not be able to see every part of your body. But yeah, checking yourself over definitely within the first 24 hours, but I would recommend right away, as soon as you've been outside, is really going to be a really helpful and effective method at catching those ticks before they have a chance to latch on, bite, and transmit any disease. Yeah, really great advice. And I also mentioned there if you have a pet, because sometimes you can't tell your pet, hey, don't run in the tall grass. They're going to do what they do. I imagine the ticks also are able to latch onto them and then potentially latch onto you. Is that something that you see? And do you have any advice there? Absolutely. And this is a little bit harder, but the same way that we recommend for people to stay on the low cut or hiking trails and avoiding the tall grass and the brushy areas, you want to keep your pets out of those areas as well. Check your pets for ticks as well, either brushing them or petting them, right? One of, one of the most interesting and a little bit scariest ways that we can pick up a tick I've had patients where they're like, well, I don't hike. I don't go outside. But it was actually their pet that brought the tick into the house. Mm. And then the tick got onto them from their pet. So checking your pets and keeping your pets out of those tall grass and brushy areas is super important as well. So you've already talked about the spray or repellent that you can wear to prevent ticks from latching onto you. But is there any other research or technology that people should be aware of that has been developed to combat the rise of these tick-borne diseases? Yeah, I think probably the biggest take-home point is that prevention is first and foremost, right? right? Knowing good habits when we're going outside, especially in the spring, summer, and fall. That's really paramount. There really is some interesting research going on. Uh, there's actually some gene-modifying techniques that they're studying to actually modify the genes of ticks such that they're not able to transmit some of these diseases. 
little bit away from things like that, but that's one of the areas of kind of research that's being done right now. Also, some areas do employ local control measures, right? So we talked about some of the animals that can spread ticks. We talked about the white-footed mouse and chipmunks and squirrels and deer populations, so on and so forth. So what some regions will do is they will safely control those animal populations to try to help decrease and mitigate the spread of disease. But those are things that aren't going to be as effective as opposed to just good outdoor hygiene, right? Wearing proper clothing, using properly treated clothing, and really just staying out of the areas that are high risk to pick up a tick. So just before we close, I'm sure you've helped a lot of patients that have contracted one of these tick-borne diseases. If there's one thing that you know to be true that you want our audience to take away from this conversation, what might that be? I think a lot of the things that we spoke about today can seem a little bit scary, right? We're talking about like all these bacterial diseases and parasitic diseases and virus diseases and tick populations are are increasing. But I think with just good common sense and a few pieces of information, we can really keep ourselves safe. I think that's one big take-home point. The other one is stay calm. If you do find a tick on yourself or on a family member or on a loved one, don't worry about it. We can we can treat it. You've already done a great job in identifying it. Chances are, if you're doing a good job checking in the short term after you've been outside, you're in that window to safely remove it. So removing ticks is pretty straightforward. You can look up online how to do it, but pretty much a pair of tweezers and you grasp the tick right at the head and gently pull it off is more than adequate. If you don't feel comfortable doing this, you can talk to your primary doctor or you can check in with a local emergency department or urgent care. If you do take the tick off, put it in a plastic bag and bring it to us for us to look at. We're pretty good at identifying what type of tick it is. So not every tick carries diseases. So there are certain types of ticks that don't carry Lyme disease. And if we can identify the tick as one of those, then you're in the clear. That's awesome to hear. Well, Dr. Sasso, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. That was Dr. Paul Sasso, Medical Site Director for the Andrus Pavilion Emergency Department at St. John's Riverside Hospital. For more information, please call our Physician Referral Service at 914-964-4DOC or email us at findadoc at riversidehealth.org. If you found this podcast to be helpful, please share it on your social channels and be sure to check out the entire podcast library for topics of interest to you. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Riverside Radio HealthCast, a podcast from St. John's Riverside Hospital. My name is Prakash Chandran, and until next time, be well. Be well.